Welcome back to Meet You at the Bottom, a conversation podcast where we get to the bottom of topics at the top of mind with a drink in hand, of course. I'm your host, Abhinav Brahmabdam, and as always, thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, we're changing it up a little bit. Instead of one topic, I thought it would be good to do a recap of Q1 2021 and discuss some of the key events that took place with a focus on the COVID-19 vaccine rollout, the Texas energy crisis, big tech, and NFTs. So to break down these important topics of the last three months, I was joined by Meet You at the Bottom pod favorites, Nicholas Biggie, Shanu Matthew, and Connor Murphy. We had a very thought-provoking, insightful conversation that lasted over two hours long. And most importantly, we went through almost four bottles of wine, some bourbon, and a handful of high noons. As I mentioned in the tagline, the whole premise of this show is to get together with your friends and discuss some relevant topics while enjoying some cocktails. So I think this episode really epitomizes the concept and the reasoning why I decided to start Meet You at the Bottom. So this was my first in-person group recording of the podcast, so I apologize if there were some audio quality issues. I'm still figuring out how to record in person versus the standard Zoom recording of the last uh, six or seven months. But regardless, the conversation was really fun, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did when we were doing the recording. Since we went a little bit long, I decided to split it up into two halves as well. The first half is focused on the vaccine deployment and the Texas energy crisis, while the second half is focused on big tech and NFTs. Both halves are great and equally informational and enjoyable to listen to. So I hope you enjoy both conversations. Look out for the second half in a couple of days. I'll release that then. And as always, thank you for tuning in. Welcome back to Meet You at the Bottom. I want to start off today's episode with a quote from the famous poet, Carol Bryant. He once said, some people make things happen, some people watch things happen, and then there are those who wonder, what the hell just happened? Well, that last part is what I'm here today to discuss what the hell just happened in the last three months of Q1 2021. I'm joined today by Naperville North's finest, Nick Biggie, the most Southern Indian I know, Shanu Matthew, and California Chips Connor, <laughs> Connor Murphy, <laughs> to do a recap and dive into a few of the events of uh, the last quarter in the last three months. So with that, I really appreciate you guys coming back on. Uh, how are you guys doing and, and what are you drinking? Solid, man. Uh, thanks for having us back on. Uh, I'm drinking your booze right now, but it's uh, Cobalt Distillery-based Chicago bourbon. Um, so it's awesome. Love it. Thanks for having me back, Abby. Um, I'm drinking a limited release Hickory <laughs> Creek, which is in New Buffalo, Michigan, uh, Riesling wine. I'm drinking a Riesling as well, same as Nicholas. I flew all the way from California to New Buffalo. I heard they have good wineries out <laughs> here. I hadn't had enough out there, so I had to start uh, exploring a little bit. Excited to be here, and let's get a little cheers and kick yeah, this off. Cheers. Let's get it going. Meet you at the bottom, boys. Meet you at the bottom. <clears throat> Oh, baby. <laughs> as far as you're leaving, right? so that's what we're doing. Right, Nick and I got a little left still. <laughs> that, that cab from Hickory Creek Vineyard, <laughs> same vineyard as all of us, uh, 
went down pretty smooth. So good. So we're here today to talk Q1. And so I thought I'd focus in the conversation because um, a lot happened, but on four, four main topics, COVID vaccines, the Texas energy crisis, big tech, and the hottest thing since Game of Thrones, NFTs. So with that, I wanted to start with, you know, a topic that we probably love discussing on a daily basis, the pandemic, uh, but really focusing it on the vaccine here. And I promise this is my, this is my only spiel for the night, but uh, I don't know why I've gotten really immersed in the vaccine deployment. And I, I think I texted you guys this, but I, I kind of view it in five stages. One, the development of the vaccine. So we've been doing mRNA testing for years. So that went well to procuring the vaccine. And, and you guys kind of know my political views. I think this is where President Trump nailed it. Operation Warp Speed. I think he bought everything he could buy. I love it. And if you look at like the EU, for example, they were like price negotiating with people. And now they're, now they're seeing the consequences of just not having enough, enough doses. So I thought that was really good. Um, the third part, distribution and manufacturing of the vaccine. Um, this is where I think post-election, when things went a little, you know, t to the wayside, I think that was pretty bad at the beginning. And then things changed come February and, and March with, you know, the J&J Merck uh, combination or agreement, um, Defense Production Act. I think there, there's been a better coordination between the states and, and federal government and and we don't need to spend some time, especially Nick, Nick and I, on states versus federal uh, oversight or, or regulation or anything. Um, but this is a good case study for that. The, the fourth part, I think it's convincing people to go get the vaccine. I think we're in that stage now. Um, basically, you know, it's available for anyone, um, you know, especially in a few weeks, especially by the end of this month um, in April. And, and then the last part is vaccine diplomacy. So we have a bunch of vaccines in the United States. So how do we go about vaccinating the rest of the world? Mm -hmm. um, so let's shelve that piece for now. Talk a little bit about the first four parts. Talk about the U.S. Um, quick stats here. So as of today, March 30th, when we're recording it, uh, 145.8 million doses have been administered in the United States out of 180.6 uh, distributed. So that's 80% of doses that are distributed have been administered. So that's roughly 29% of Americans. You're, that's impressive, right? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, because I think we hear a lot of news about, um, you know, just doses getting thrown away. 20% is a lot, obviously. Right. Um, but we're still doing a good job of filling out appointments when people don't make it or people understand that they can come and show up at the end of the day and get, get vaccinated. And, and so that's 29% of Americans who've received a first dose and 16% um, who've been fully vaccinated. So these numbers are from the Washington Journal, by the way. Um, have to use a conservative news source just so people don't, you know, hey. <laughs> feel it's like, not, Abby, where are you pulling this from? It's not the New York Times. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I've always said this, and I think I've told a couple of you guys, or if you get a few drinks in me, by May 1st, it'll be easier to get a vaccine than a fucking Twix bar. And so I think the deployment... You're right. I think, yeah. You're right. So I think it's I think the deployment itself has gone pretty well recently. It's rapidly improved from you know the early month of January. So so I think you know there's a lot to learn, uh, a lot to see. You know you know what went wrong before, what got better. Curious, kind of how you guys think about this whole thing um, in terms of how it's gone. Um, Nick, you're you're nodding your head, and and for the listeners, 
Nick just came back from the course and he's got his master vest on. Master's vest on. It's Masters great. next week. <laughs> bet, <laughs> bet Jordan Spieth. <laughs> oh, baby. He's back. No, um, no, I'm just agreeing with everything you said because, you know, we, you and I have talked about this a lot uh, the past couple months. And uh, you were right with one from a supply side, but also just in general access. Um, and I think more for like our cohort and age. Um, the point four is where I want to kind of dive in later on with yeah. like convincing the general public that this is the same thing because I have people in my circles that are older and, you know, they have thoughts if they trust this is it mrna or yeah, you know, just the whole science behind mm-hmm. it and mm-hmm. you know i think us i would say most people in our circle friends wise are pretty comfortable with modern medicine but some people you know we're just one part of that equation and some people won't take it and that's just the reality of it and i'd be curious like what the stats are they probably don't have the data for it of how many people are in that you know, for Illinois, one A group, or you know, the L like sixty five and up, that haven't decided to get vaccinated and are just kind of like, I don't want, you know, that, or I just, you know, they just decided that I don't want it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, well, it's interesting too. I think Illinois, anyone above sixty five, I like think the number is seventy one or seventy two percent of that population has been vaccinated. Yeah. Which, by that population, I mean that's, that's crazy. That's the herd immunity population, but I would also be be like why isn't that not 95 i don't know or closer but it but i think there's, i think part of it is convincing people about the vaccine too i think there's just a level of laziness that we all have unless someone's showing up on my front door and popping it into fair. my arm that's fair and i was just gonna say at least in the part of some of the rollout especially so in california but i, I thought even to an extent here in chicago that it was pretty poorly ran in the sense of like there was all these like codes that you needed to use and they're trying to preference certain groups as well, but it generally didn't work as designed. Like I get that the root, the spirit of it was like, let's try to get it in communities that are overly hit or communities that need it more, uh, whether you have comorbidities or age or whatever. But it ended up just becoming a, a system that got gamed out by a bunch of different people. So for example, like the United Center, when they opened up their first set of slots, like 40% of the slots went to people outside of the state. Because I, they I should have caveated the United Center thing was, <clears throat> that was a joke. Yeah, so, yeah. Like, like, yeah. And even in general, I feel like it became this weird thing where it was like, if you did get access to get a shot, like, was it okay for you to do it? And then were you going to be like, quote unquote, cancel if you got it? And I, I feel like generally going back to the point that Nick made, like at the end of the, or, or one, one of you made was, at the end of the day, we're solving for shots and arms. And if you're willing to take a shot and, and get it, Right. Like you should just prioritize for that. Right. And you should make it as easy as possible. Go if you want to emphasize your communities, go there, set up a shop that's very easy to get access yeah. to. And if you're willing to do it, to go get a shot. Yeah, I, um, I'd be curious to hear Murph's perspective from a you know somebody who lives in a different city, but major city from San Fran. Yeah, like what the last couple months or twelve weeks. Yeah, I'll try to keep it short. I think what California done is pretty abysmal. Uh, I think to Shanu's point about shots and arms, if we're in a pandemic which I do believe we're in one, then we should treat it like one. Who's your governor? <laughs> Gavin, are you listening? It's, uh-huh. it's mind-blowing to have a complete shutdown and yet have this meant much of bureaucratic nonsense because at the end of the day, we're trying to get shots in arms. And that should mean that almost every single appointment is is filled and if it's not filled walk-ins should be able to do it it should almost be run on a 24 7 basis 
we shouldn't be running nine to five clinics with weekends off and there shouldn't be a need to use the no bid hundred million dollar Accenture platform to, to fill it. Um, so I just think if right. we're in this pandemic, which we are in it, right. And we're treating it as such with shutdowns, then we should be getting shots in arms. And it doesn't seem that hard. Like this isn't something that you need to have a certain skilled medical profession, medical professional to do it. Like nurses can do it. Volunteers can do it. And we should be cruising through vaccines. I mean, there was two weeks ago that California ended up giving out 215,000 vaccines and they put 250,000 on the shelf. So I'm looking at the uh, uh, stats right now and there are, and this is, I don't even know if this is updated, but there's 4 million doses on the shelf. And I mean, I just think it's kind of embarrassing. Uh, and I think it's a good case study. Yeah, I think it's a good case study of of a failed centralized authority on this because if you were a business, well, let me, you would I be fired. It, can I turn it over? Like, are we going to look back in 10, 15 years when this is all past us? And like, should should this have been privatized? Like, should the government have just outsourced it? I've kind of had or, or should it have, I don't believe this, but or should it have been from the top and the federal government's running this whole thing? Yeah, versus think, allocating it to local and state jurisdictions where there's a lot of miscommunication, unallocation, trying to figure out which communities you want to hit and trying to win some political points at the same time. I think the fact that it was an election year kind of played into that. Whatever yeah. it may be, I don't know what the answer is, right? Because we're, yeah. we're doing a bunch yeah. of what ifs. 100%. The postmortem, though, if, if run, probably not because it's the government, is, I mean, objectively... I think it was done. (laughs) (laughs) Objectively, I think it's terrible. I mean, I I think we should have been at a point where we were prepping for this since we're over a year since we had the our initial uh, two week lockdown, and to that to that we should have been having the national guard set up. We should have had every single stadium and public area, you know, prepped with tents. People who didn't have jobs or had jobs taken away that were qualified could have been volunteers or paid by the government, and we could have cruised through this. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I still am not eligible in California, and the longer we wait, the more chance there's a mutation, and I just think it's a it's been kind of a failure, at least to the standards that I hold. Yeah, so actually, I kind of want to build off what you just said, because I know that you know a lot about the vaccine diplomacy side of it. So I, I don't know how much credence I'd give to this, but I saw folks talking today about the fact that certain countries don't have enough vaccines. Mm-hmm. And now we're running into the issue where like mutations are going crazier in some, some areas or parts of the globe. And the issue now is becoming, at least the folks that do have a lot of vaccines, is do you start prioritizing some of these going to some of these other areas where right. there's a chance for this to get out of control again. And then you foster a breed of, or a variant of COVID that we'll need to roll out a whole other set of booster shots for and everything else. Uh, and I hadn't thought of that at all uh, until the point, cause I was kind of like solving for what's local, but like, do you have any thoughts on that or is, have you seen anything yeah. about that? Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. It's funny. Cause I was going to ask you guys that, cause this is what <laughs> I've been thinking about the last like month. It's, it's, and to bring it back to what you guys said to close the loop there, and I, and I think there was a lot of, you know, mistakes and missteps, you know, early on and even a month ago, but I think jurisdictions are making changes. Like, I, I'm biased because I live here and I read more our news, but I was telling you about this, Murph, like, 
protect Chicago, protect neighborhoods. They had two different uh, pathways where they went to every underprivileged community or who was hit with vaccine, just basically had a shot. You can show up anytime. If you're 18 and above and you, you show proof of residence, here you go. Or if you just, I think, honestly, if you just showed up, I think they would give it to you. <laughs> yeah, and if and, you didn't, well, yeah. And like, if you didn't, you just self-selected yourself out of it. Mm. And I actually had a coworker who basically stood there and was like, hey, I'm not, I'm not a resident here. I'm going to stay here for three hours. At the end of the day, if you have an extra dose, can I get it? They were like, yeah, and you got it. So they did yeah. that for underprivileged and they did that for senior living. So I thought that was like a nice improvement. And I know from the top down, there was like this big press conference yesterday that I think the stat is like 90% of Americans will be able to get a vaccine within, well, we'll have a vaccination site within five miles of your home. So that, I, is it too little, too late? I don't know with these mutations and things like that, but at least like people are seeing, the government and jurisdictions are seeing, hey, we made a mistake and, and um, we need to you know, figure out what the best course of that recourse is here and, and try to get, get the shots in arms. The diplomacy thing, I don't know. Um, and, and the problem, this is where things unfortunately are political. If you're America and you know, you're know you Joe Biden, you have, you're gonna have a shit ton of vaccines. What are you gonna do with it? Especially come June 1 when almost everyone has a dose in, in their arm, at least for a shot. You gotta give it away. And, and they already started giving stuff away to Canada and Mexico. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes sense. They're your closest allies, they're right next door. And, and you can have traffic. After that, where do you go? Do you give it to the poor countries who really need it? Do you give it to the Europeans who've like, what the fuck are they doing over there? I don't even know. Oh, it's Europe. Yeah, EU. Um, UK's fine. Israel's fine. Um, do you give it, India's building their own. You don't give it to Russia or China. But Russia and China are using their vaccine to buy diplomacy in Latin America and in Africa. There are, all, are already these agreements in place. So what do you do? Are you calling the vaccine like a currency here? for that, that is what it's turning into. It's turning into a political action. And then the second part and the most important part is the health and the variance. So if it was up to me, I would start giving away doses right now. Because I think these mutations are crazy. And, and, and we're a global world. And How people can you are traveling. do that, though, when... I mean... I, when we haven't there's gotten... so many people that still need to get it. In America? Yeah. I think you just have confidence in... In J and J, you have confidence in in Merck and Pfizer to produce more, as much as yeah they're doing, and more, and that's why you're building these partnerships and you, you invoke the Defense Production Act, yeah. Act, right? I don't, I don't know. We, we've already bought more than like the, our population. Like we've had yeah, like threefold. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So I guess like or twofold. Yeah. In that context, I could understand a little bit of of using some of that to garner better, I guess, diplomatic relationships. Because I guess, like, the way that I would look at it, if you were X country and you didn't get it from, like, the Americans, but you got it from Russia or China or something, like, next time there's, like, a trade deal or you need a vote on some type of international alliance, like, I don't know how that won't play a fact. As, like, weird as that is to think it's about. It's unfortunate. Because it's if, a, yeah. if it's up to me, like, who, who the hell cares? Like, you just give them away. Like, yeah. there's mutations that are going to come eventually hurt your own homeland. Yeah. Like, you need to go to somewhere in Africa or South Africa that they're very, you need to go to Brazil that's like really struggling right now. But I think there's so much noise so, that you can't do something right. A tangent question with like, so the brokering besides the, the, the countries, mm -hmm. like where does the World Health Organization play in this type of stuff? Like, are they, I mean, I think they, they can, do anything. They can say whatever they want to say, but th there's this COVAX, um, uh, fund that the WHO like, set up. So like that the United Nations of COVID-19 vaccine distribution. Yeah, so, so basically 
this COVAX thing, from what I, what I read is um, every country can allocate doses to this and they'll distribute it out to people. Okay. But what, those, what are they the, affiliated COVAX? WHO. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they have an arm just focused on vaccinating <laughs> the world. Problem is they can't like, they're on the money to go buy, like, you know, countries have to give them doses or the United States gave them money to go buy. And then they're waiting on people to produce. I think this is where the political stuff plays into effect. Because when did people join COVAX? This was like, you know, when did the vaccine come out? November, December. And, and um, you know, WHO, China, who was in office making the decisions. A lot of that plays into, plays into effect there. So it's like hard to figure out. And Joe Biden didn't, you know, you would think like, oh, he'd give doses away. He didn't allocate doses. He allocated billions of dollars to help WHO buy doses when they're produced. So I don't know. I don't have a good answer. And I'm going in circles here, so. No, I just, it's a fair point. I don't yeah. think anybody has an answer, so. Any other final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think you just go for probably underserved communities at mm-hmm. first. And I agree, I think we should start putting it out there. I mean, we're, I think we should start looking at ourselves as a global community and rather than just the United States. So we should be able to support them as much as possible. And then I think you can just pivot from there. Now, will our government pivot? We've seen that that's <laughs> not the case. But yeah. I mean, if this is an effective business, I think you could start helping those that really need it. Those are ones that are that are most affected. And then if there is data showing that there's a certain strain in a certain area, you pivot to that one. So you go underserved first, and then if needed, you move towards ones that are going to net the U.S. and just global health the best away from yeah. any type of mutations. 100% agree. And, and, and the last thought I have is like you're seeing, I think the U.K. and the U.S. partnered with India, um, a country that's quasi-democratic in my mind now, um, but they can produce stuff faster than stuff here in the UK can. So they're partnering with them, giving them money or, or giving them the resources and they can start producing faster and they can distribute it out to you. So you, you'll see some more of that partnerships, but I don't know, it is interesting to play, put the hat on a, a president or, or prime minister and see like, what do you do when you're doing really well? Um, and it's like Israel is like, are they, are they vaccinating the Palestinians and the Gaza Strip or are they just vaccinating their own population? It's the same kind of thing. Um, Anyway, I don't have the best transition here, but I want to switch over to <laughs> something equally depressing and frustrating. <laughs> um, well, I can end that last one on a, on a lighter note. Yeah. If it was my choice, we should completely support Argentina because I have a trip there this fall. Perfect. So let's get them completely vaccinated, specifically Mendoza, Mendoza. and wine region. <laughs> and, and that would benefit me because then you could bring back, follow them all back. Yeah. And I love that place. Let's make sure that place is as safe as possible. Yeah. <laughs> I got a wedding in Cancun in October, so just Cancun. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get them going. Um, anyway, I hope everyone listening gets a vaccine bar or vaccine dose over at Twix Bar come, uh, come May 1st. So looking at you, Shinyu, Texas energy crisis, and I was telling Murph today, and and we've texted about this a little bit, about just news and people. It's a little frustrating that this is still not prevalent anymore. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on, but 
um, you know, major, and I'm putting this in quotes, and I think you, you always put it in quotes, unprecedented global weather events, yeah. which are happening every other day, it seems like, um, should be discussed. And I know this hit home, you know, for you with your parents down there. Um, you know, I know we're going to do a climate change overall episode and, and talk about some of, you know, Joe Biden's policies. But, but I'm curious, like, what are your reactions? You're, you're a resident climate expert in our mind. You're a resident Texas expert. What happened? And like, what do we need to learn from it? How would you describe it to someone? Uh, this, this is all you, man. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I will uh, do my best. and I'm, I, I can send across a bunch of links that we can put in the notes that mm-hmm. will explain it a lot better and more articulate than I can. But in general, I think it was a, a lack of preparation uh, for extreme and unlikely events to occur, but ones that have a high cost associated with them. Uh, and that's generally what you could def- define some of the climate and weather events by. So the, uh, the interesting issue with the Texas one is it, and I'm very much of the opinion that you should never say things definitively until you have absolute evidence you can. Um, you can't explicitly connect it to a specific, I guess, dynamic associated with the warmer climate just yet. Like there's, there's an argument to be made that like the jet stream weakening leads to mm-hmm. you know, colder air coming down to Texas and that causes the winter, winter event, yada, yada. But like, you know, planetary scale events have quite a bit of factors that play into them. So you can't necessarily rule out that it was from a warming climate that caused that event. But what I do know and what you can say for sure with certainty is that in a warming climate, you will continually have more extreme weather events, whether it be from like certain conditions in California that lead to wildfires or extreme heat events elsewhere. Um, But what happened in Texas uh, and and the main issue there was, was uh, it was a lack of planning. So Mainly, Texas equipment is made for hot weather. Uh, I mean, if, if anyone that's been in Texas, you know, it's not known for mid-teens degree weather. It's known for being warm and an extremely, uh, you know, temperate climate. And the issue was, was there's a winter freeze event where there was extremely cold weather there that the grid was unprepared for. Uh, and that means that the equipment was not made to withstand conditions uh, in, in the low teens and single digits in, in negative degree temperature. Yeah. Um, so with that... What happens is with an energy grid, you need it to be in balance at all times. So that whatever is being generated from a power plant or from a battery needs to be consumed at the same time. So in events where you have a mismatch of demand and supply, so in, in the case of this winter freeze, you had a lot of supply go offline because a lot of these plants were not designed to run in the winter. So they tripped. Um, so basically there is a central facility in, in Texas case it's called ERCOT. Generally there's a central planning thing where Every year you go through the motions and you're like, we're going to have so many plants do maintenance at this time. We're going to have a bunch of power demand in the summer or winter, and then we're going to have these plants run. Um, and what happened with the winter freeze event was there was 16,000 megawatts of generation capacity that could not no longer run or tripped. Um, so you no longer had that supply. So the only thing that you can do in that situation to manage the supply demand balance is reduce the demand. So that's what leads to voluntary blackouts. Um, so you ended up having to cut off power from a lot of different folks to prevent the entire grid from failing. Um, And so I guess long story short of that's the preamble of like why it happened. I guess the, the the broader takeaway is that we need to start factoring in uh, extreme weather conditions and or extraneous events. uh, And the way that we do that is by building in resilience and incentivizing folks to build in resilient infrastructure or uh, redundancy that otherwise doesn't really fit into the whole like capital efficiency standpoint of like i guess the rest of the world right like generally you're trying to incentivize profit and behavior that matches that but 
in a changing climate and in a warming climate, you're going to have more events you can't really plan for, and you need to build in a certain layer of resiliency and redundancy. Um, and then the one issue I had with it, which I'll go on a quick spiel for, was post the event, you had people pointing fingers at whether it was yeah. the environmentalist pointing at fossil fuels or, or fossil fuels pointing at frozen wind turbines, which is a load of nonsense. Um, but it, ultimately, I think this just goes back to that broader point of resiliency and redundancy, and that's the whole what the whole climate movement's about, is that it wasn't a it wasn't a single point of failure. It was multiple points of failure. We just had no lack of planning around that. And so, basically, I'm hoping that this forces governments to start thinking about things and how can we incent behavior that you build in more redundancy, uh, you make a lot more of the grid electric, and then you build in you know or try to bring the cost down of batteries that would help right. solve this issue a lot. So uh, I know there's a lot to digest there, uh, but that was generally my like three minute thing of, you know, what it looks like and what needs to be built as a result of it. Yeah, I learned I learned the acronym TLDR in Q1 2021, <laughs> so uh, that was good. That was, no, yeah. that was great. Yeah, I mean, I think on top of that, it's I know this is just Q1 recap, but it was something that I mentioned to you earlier, yeah. is we're, you know, barely a year out from the Australia fires, right? Yeah. And then I think this is something that I'm acutely aware of recently, just living in San Francisco, and, you know, we're... I don't know the exact date, but probably six months-ish from uh, the city just being orange. That very creepy, like, yeah. post-apocalyptic. I remember the pictures you had sent. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, absolutely crazy. And it, it, I think it just feeds back into um, the continual unprecedented events that just are happening every two months or, or even sooner at times. And it, it just is, it, it gives me, like, cause for concern that, it continues to happen and action doesn't because right. So if, if it's, if this was the one time thing, then you start to make those excuses. But as it continues to happen over and over again, and I mean, sometimes you can end up thinking, Oh, Australia is so far away, but now we're, I mean, those are two events, you know, within the same country within a six month period. Not to play devil's advocate. Here, <laughs> oh, baby. I believe in climate change. You guys, I, I do, but there's events and I think the wildfire, those type things, and with the jet stream type stuff, but, like, for the events in Texas, totally agree. But, like, to some extent, that could be a 100-year storm, act of God type of thing. And, you know, we make it better. And my problem is that people go directly to this, like, oh, government sucks. You know, like, we weren't prepared, but, like, it's Texas. Like, it, well... It's interesting because you're you're hundred. Isn't that what they said about the polar vortex too? When we were up in the mid north, yeah, but like northeast, uh, like in twenty fourteen or thirteen, like that was a, oh act of God, a hundred year thing. And, it, the, it, and the wildfires it, and the Australia it just, fires. I, I'm not as well versed as I just want to get both here. sides of it here. So yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not Al Gore climate change level, but yeah, I do yeah. believe yeah. that. But it's a no, learning moment. Reducing I, our carbon footprint yeah. is important. Yeah. So I, I very much I, I appreciate that viewpoint, and I, I totally agree with you. But so, like for example, like Texas, right? Like that should be a once in a very long while type of right. event. Um, it happened in 2011, and, and like there was a postmortem written about it, oh. and the recommendations provided to ERCOT were so no so, data points. Like this could be uh, there could be another cold event, and the grid's not prepared for it. So um, well, so on that note. Um, one, I, I didn't know that too. So, okay. It was presented to ERCOT and ERCOT did nothing about it or? Well, yeah, I, I guess like, yes. And then this is the part where it's a little bit tough where it's not just a government issue because at the end of the day, someone has to pay for it. And whether that's taxpayers right. or investors or whatever else, 
uh, somebody to step in. And I guess the, the issue with all this is when you prepare for this stuff or building redundancy, it requires a lot of people to to spend money now on, on a future that may not happen. And that's the biggest point. I can appreciate that. Yeah. Like, um, and so it's tough, but like at, at some point, right, you need to start building in some level of like, this is just going to be spent on resiliency and redundancy. It doesn't sort of totally, today, totally but support, at some point it will totally support that. Yeah. It's like, it's like anything like a, running a business and obviously running your, your state or your, your electric grid. Yeah. Um, but how much do we devote to that resource wise? So more than what we're doing now, yeah. I, that's all I know. I guess the only issue that I'll have with it, for example, so Warren Buffett just came out with a plan that was like, we're going to make sure Texas never happens again. And the idea is to build just a bunch of natural gas power plants. That's and not so going to work. Absent carbon capture, like, like, I guess the issues I have with some of those arguments is that you continually contribute to the issue that is causing those events in the first place. It's like, we're going to continue to spew more carbon in the air uh, and that'll continue to lead to a warming climate. That's going to lead to crazier events. Um, or just at least amplify the effects of whatever other extremities going on. So I feel like that's the issue where sometimes it's, I think I can agree that, you know, it's like, I don't say like we should spend all of our money on a bunch of preventative measures that may never happen and like call apocalypse every day. But like at some point we need to start just, you know, calling out the elephant in the room and saying, let's address the easy stuff. Um, you know, let's all agree that we need to get net to net zero and let's move on that sooner than later. Um, so that's the most frustrating part with, some of the Texas stuff was like, I mean, you have Governor Abbott that goes on TV like a few hours into the first day and says it's all because of frozen wind Winter turbines. Rise. It's like, all right, like you're clearly just a talking head for a lot of the fossil fuel companies. Yeah. Um, and so that's the stuff where it's a little frustrating. Big oil. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so. he kind of is though, but, but that's besides the point. How do you um, get elected though? Uh, another topic. Do we talk about the Georgia voting restrictions right now? No, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, yeah. I, I think one, one, one point of, of that, I'm curious, all your guys' opinions of mm-hmm. the narrative got lost, kind of what you said. And it's not and it's not just Governor Abbott on the right. I mean, the left spun the narrative too. Mainstream media, the fringe media, actually every sort of media just pointed fingers. And, and how, do you, how do you get the guy that's like looking at the news and like, see, I knew global warming wasn't a thing. Like, it's really cold outside. This is what caused this. Like, how do you get that person really believe in like, hey, this is something that's happening around us every day. You can't really see it until you see it every few years. And unless it affects you, you're not going to really care about it. How do you get that narrative to be like, you need to focus in on this. Like, this is a major thing that's going to affect you, your kids, your grandchildren, etc. Which I don't know the answer to that. But No, it's a good question. Um, I don't have the answer either, but... Good timing think, for when you open the barefoot bottle. It is good. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, to that point, like I, I think it's it's not something that is gonna be solved because everybody has their own opinions and interests, and um, outside of like the documentaries that like shake people to whether they're yeah. you know, I would just think of that like. It, it is for sure something that, you know, if you go back to like the industrial revolution, how things are changing, like I think the way we move is going to be electronic vehicles and like gas stations won't be a thing for maybe our kids, maybe not, but like we're moving that way. Mm-hmm. We're trying to make better. Is it too late? Um, uh, I wonder. I don't know. I think maybe if you ask somebody further on the spectrum of like, you know, 
yet. Like, yeah, it is too late. But I, I do think that, like, us as, like, humans, we consume things and have never thought of it. We just really didn't have the me mechanisms to, like, measure these things before. And then you have these events where I think people really exaggerate them. I will say, like, from a preventative versus, like, reactive standpoint, we're horrible at being, like, planning for things. And, like, that's what yeah. we saw with Texas. And, yeah. you know, those I don't know how... I don't know if you had data on how, like, that grid was in place since the 80s or 70s or, like... Like, basically, like, that infrastructure, it's the same way that Chicago works, any major city. Like, Elon Musk wants to build tunnels. Like, it's a changing of infrastructure to some degree. Yep. Um, which I'm all for. Uh, it's going to take a lot of capital, but I think... Yeah. When, when you look at, like, cities of the future, like, in Singapore or... I went to, I went to one in, in the UAE. I mean, um, I, I heard... Yeah. It was, it's amazing to look at what they're like, doing. There's but places in the world like this, which, you know, I have not been fortunate enough to go to yet and i hope i do because i think that like yeah. this is kind of like an urbanization thing where like maybe i like, don't know there's people that live in the future and some people live in the past and that's part of i think the narrative what what like you've read up on this shouldn't you like what would you like what have you seen has worked in terms of like how do you pay for it or how do you get some of this stuff done yeah i mean i mean so i'm um, the one side i guess how do you pay taxes for it? <laughs> <laughs> not, oh, not, not every time i mean it would be nice to price in the externalities. Taxes, lower taxes if you're EV, baby. <laughs> if you could price in the externalities some of the costs associated with a certain way of life. Money talks. So a carbon tax would be ideal in a yeah, lot of ways. Yeah. But a lot of ways it's just making the technology cheap enough, so investing in the R&D. Um, mm -hmm. But I think, honestly, it's a, it's a two-pronged issue, which I don't have the answer for, which is, is changing that human nature of, like, how do you incentivize yeah. someone to spend on tomorrow, today? Um, and, like, so this interesting, as I read the study post-Texas... I guess politi politicians that end up passing like emergency type of relief mm -hmm. uh, or like, you know, I guess like is quote unquote savior mode uh, are viewed a lot more favorably than folks that try to work on preventative issues or stuff that's not per present in the current light. And I, I think like from that point alone, it's going to be really hard to get politicians to really step up behind stuff where, hey, this may not happen in my term or even like three terms from now, but this is something we're doing now. Um, if they know that they're gonna be better received and better liked if they are in that role where they get to pass a relief or the emergency mm -hmm. disaster funding or whatever else, which I think is a like really hard problem to solve. And two, even on the business model side too, is like we need some type of revolution or different type of creative thinking around how can you incentivize, again, spending today for a benefit that you get in the future, yeah. um, which is, I don't think anyone has the answer for it, but that's like what we'll need to solve. Yeah, for. Beth, go ahead, Murph. I was gonna, I was gonna use your famous words, and I can't believe I'm saying this live. Burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of times Connor Murphy texts me, burn it down. Burn it down. Start <laughs> over. I mean, I think it's gonna take leadership. Uh, I always lean that it'll take it'll be free market leadership rather than government leadership, as you could probably tell from the the first uh, topic and. I mean, I think that's just what it's going to end up being. You'll see the Chamaths, the Dorseys, the Gates of the world put their money to work and start to find ways that there's a, you know, a, a net positive on a capitalistic term as well as on a, a world beneficial term. And they'll start to invest in either 
you know, uh, if it's carbon, you know, reduction or it's new, these, you know, setting up completely brand new cities that are, are set up on you know, EV grids or mm-hmm. it's an entrepreneur that's going to make. Uh, I think that's more realistic option, to be honest. Yeah, they'll make a complete, yeah, uh, like a you know, bus system that's all on EV. City. You know, the, so I just think. Uh, Unfortunately, it won't be in America. That's the problem. Yeah, potentially not. But Come like, on, let's be positive. <laughs> but back to like we're, we're a global community. and You're and, not moving countries, are you? America's the best country on Earth. But but it won't happen in America. No. Maybe on Mars. There you go. <laughs> I mean, there's another one, Elon, right? So I just think I think free market, hopefully. This would be a fun question control. to ask Elon because I think he mentioned Martians in it. Potentially. Uh, like I, I think he's a listener. It's I think hard to tell. I think but... there's a shadow thought that he's like, I'm building all this stuff because... I'm just accumulating resources here because we're already past the point. Yeah. Did I, the, he did the back of the napkin math on it. And he's I mean, just like building ships, maybe. building ships to go to another planet. I mean, he, they, they literally came out with the, with the Rover and there was a finding like two weeks ago. And this was going to be my Q1 event that's under the radar that I think there's been, you know, over the last few years or decade, a theory of the water on Mars just went out into space. But there was a study that NASA gave out was it actually got seeped into the crust. So now there's going to be this thing of like, okay, how do you like get this water from the crust? Um, which, to your point, yeah, maybe like Elon's figured it out and already knew about this before so, all of us. Can I ask a question about like for climate change and this type of stuff? Yeah. Just like looking out in future generations, like is this a problem? I mean, I know it's a problem for us. Like, what? When do we get to that point of no return? Let me, let me pour up Shadu yeah. before uh, yeah. he answers that. Yeah. Is that a fair well, question to even it, ask? One bottle down. I think it totally is. Is it 1,000 years? Is it 200 years? Is like is my great-great-great-grandchild? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's a super valid question. I think that this is a, a perfect example of like just the extremity on both sides of the equation where you have one side of people that are doomist and they love posting the apocalypse thing where it's like your grandkids are going to be drowned and, and breathe air that's not breathable and stuff like that. And then you have the other side is like, this is a whole hoax, like China owns the entire supply chain. That's what they're pushing it. Um, but like in reality, it just all depends on the pace of change. So like, I think where if, do you, where do you fall on that line? I think it's very achievable that we can get down to net zero. Uh, it just, it's a matter of political will, uh, as well yeah. as business model innovation, um, and just getting people to get there. So I mean, like what's recommended by the IPCC, which is kind of this international coalition of, of pretty much all the, climate scientists across a bunch of countries. Is like a think tank or something? Uh, it's, so, it's more of an international, I guess, like cooperative. Uh, don't, don't bring up the words yeah. think tank yeah, in front of it's, Nick. It's not. I guess it's like 180 countries. They'd be based in D.C. Yeah. <laughs> and they would take a lot of taxpayer uh, money. And like a thousand plus scientists. But I guess the issue is like the time value of carbon is in, like weighted towards the front, right? Like carbon that we spew up in the air today contributes to future warming. That makes it a lot harder to work against. So the issue is what they recommended was we need to cut our emissions in half by 2030 and then to zero by 2050 to stay within a safe degree of level of warming. And then there's like a bunch of moonshot projects that I'm like pulling carbon out of the air that like may or may not help later on. Yeah, I remember. But oh, yeah. It's really, it's really tough to get there. But like I think you, we can do it, right? A lot of it is just like incentivizing behavior. And like Bill Gates just wrote a book on it where I think he takes a really pragmatic view of the climate issue where it's like, all right, we're not going to get everyone to change their lifestyles overnight. But like – you know, what could we do? There's enough or like what kind, what type of premium does government need to step in to subsidize to get po- folks to do the cleaner versions of it? So I think it's very much achievable. I don't think it's like a too, too far gone thing. I think the doomist behavior actually is like more counterproductive because then folks are like, why do you even bother? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's achievable, I guess is the short answer. 
I, and to your point, I think I think now is the time. In the next twelve months, I think there's going to be a lot of lot more noise, a lot more initiatives, a lot more government spending across multiple countries. Um, it just feels like this is the moment. Does remote work have a like impact on this? Just speaking from like commercialization of like travel and like carbon emissions, mm-hmm. I would assume so. I mean, it does in the sense of like less traveling. Does it move the needle though, or no? Like, what's the biggest? Is it the, all the oil companies? It's uh, there's like there's a chart. I mean, it's 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 pretty split across everything, right? Like, there's like energy, which is like twenty five percent. Like ag's pretty similar, twenty five percent, which is like land use and like how we yeah. like consume or make food. Uh, there's like fourteen percent transportation. Um, there's like you know, I call it ten to fifteen percent buildings. Like, it's, it's split across everything, and that's the right. issue with climate. Is like it's not like a single point of failure, but like right. You can't burning a fossil fuel house of dominoes to some degree yeah okay. yeah but i mean the issue is if you the mantra is electrify everything which is pretty much just get off fossil fuels because yeah. that kicks off a lot of the other things but i mean fossil fuels are and a lot of everything we do so the idea is you get off those and then you start to work on the harder to obey stuff um any final thoughts anyone i know this is a topic near and dear to people's hearts yeah, I can put a kind of put a bow on it. So I think one thing that you said there that was important was incentive structures. I truly believe incentive structures just drive everything or ninety nine percent of everything in the world. And right now, capitalism it, incentive structures don't you know lead toward redundancy, right? So what incentive structures are going to lead towards these carbon emissions? You've got your just you know blue sky uh, free market investors that are making it, but. Now, one thing that we've talked about before, which I won't go too far in, but it's interesting, is Bitcoin mining and renewable energies. That's and yeah. there is a reason to get down as energy. cheap as possible. Yeah. And there are renewable energy providers that are running Bitcoin mining rigs and it's more profitable. And it's a clear uh, compensation model of earning more money for building that. And that's going to drive the price down um, for that. And I think it's the same Aren't they way. All in like the polar caps too. I mean, it's all over. But the the point of the story is that what I'm getting to is as things drive the price of these renewable energy providers, then that ends up being more at scale. And I don't think we've had something to drive that down. And not that that's the end all be all, but as continual incentive structures align, that's I think how we'll get there. Interesting. That's that's a good. Uh... I feel like that's a good uh, bow to this conversation, something to think about uh, before we go to break. I got to say, before we go to break, it is kind of really awesome and fun and exhilarating to actually do this podcast. The whole premise of this whole concept was sitting around a table, having a bunch of drinks. We're having pimiento cheese and some, <laughs> cra- some crackers. Uh, you, you butchered that pronunciation. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Piment- <laughs> Pimento cheese. <laughs> hey, hey. I, I Swanson's Deli. <laughs> um, anyway, no, this is like awesome. No, Just is... do it in person instead of Zoom and we're boozing. So in the great words of uh, Connor Murphy, meet you at the bottom. Before the break, fellas. Meet you at the bottom. <laughs> I think I beat that one. Delicious. Good first half. Thanks again for listening in to the first half of our Q1 2021 recap. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And most importantly, I hope you met us at the bottom of the couple of times that we finished our drinks. 
As I mentioned in the beginning, look out for the second half to be released in a couple of days. You don't want to miss it as we delve into big tech, decentralization, NFTs, and much more. And as you can imagine, we did this full recording in one setting. So the wine, the bourbon, the nooners were, were catching up to us in the second half. So the conversation is one not to be missed. As always, thank you for tuning in. And remember, meet you at the bottom.